It's like there's so many more beliefs that need to be interrogated for this thing to actually be as decent as we are, or as we have the capacity to be. I see people who are who believe God's a monster and are trying to reflect monster God in one corner. And I see other people who still kind of believe God's a monster, but are much nicer than that God and somehow don't feel, don't see the tension there. But I don't see a lot of people who are like, if we're going to maintain this belief in God, we need to recognize, A, that the only place that we see God moving and being embodied is in us. And B, what does that say about God? This is the airing of grief. Conversations and correspondence about spiritual de- and re-construction. Season 2, Episode 22. Fragments. Hey everyone, if you've been following the past couple episodes, you know the producers of The Airing of Grief have carved out a bit of a parenthesis within this season before we officially end it and take a short break. And we've done this to make sure that we join in the same process as everyone we speak to or hear from in writing, to mark the time ourselves and to share some of our current process and thinking, and even just to tell our stories. Two weeks ago, we heard from Jamie and Derek. Last week, we heard from John. And this week, it's me. And I get what it's like for our callers now more than ever. It's a strange experience to be on the other side of that call. And yet it was also a therapeutic one to put all of this out into the same space. So much love to all who've done that before me. And let's get into it. Kevin McDougall. Hello. Greetings. Greetings. How you doing? I am well. Yeah, I find this is actually quite a nervous experience for me as well on this end of it. This was supposed to be one episode, all four of us. <laughs> yeah, and it's weird because we're not usually the chatty ones. That's true, but I, I don't know. I guess I have some different fears in play. I definitely fear expressing myself and and saying things like this in vulnerability and still being misunderstood. So yeah, that's been... That's been fun, especially like if I had just been able to do it right off the bat, then that would have been one thing. But because of the way schedules have worked out, I've had to sit here stewing on the idea of doing this for a long time. And here we are. I know we're, we're, we're doing the three questions thing. Well, from what I remember, the three questions are, what was the catalyst of your deconstruction? Uh, was there a specific moment or touch point that you encountered, you know, that kind of kicked it off? The second one was when you first moved in the process of deconstruction and trying to figure out all your former beliefs. Did you feel like something was wrong, something wrong with you? Uh, did you feel guilty about it, that type of thing? And the third question was, what is your belief association now? Like, do you have one at all? So, Kevin McDougal, what was the catalyst for your deconstruction? <laughs> well, I think I think this is the way to do this. Um, I promise to answer those questions, but I'm going to back up and give some context, kind of like we did with you. And yep. you, since nobody knows your story, right? And you feel free to interrupt me at any time. And oh, I will. <laughs> and then I don't know when we're done. We'll see if I didn't cover those questions. Yep. Hopefully, I did. Um, so where does it all start? 
Well, I'm from California. I live in Nashville now, but I uh, originally am from California, Southern California. The gist of that is that my parents were Jesus Movement Christians, which when all the hippies kind of flooded into the church in the late 60s, early 70s, late 70s, that whole era that they called the Jesus Movement, um, my parents were a part of that in Orange County. And my dad came to faith through Billy Graham, like actually went forward at one of those big crusade things. Uh, and my parents met at Calvary Chapel in its heyday, which um, back in those days, it was a lot of rapture talk and a bunch of hippie kids who believed that Jesus was returning soon and false prophecies being made that no one ever seemed to have to answer for. Uh, my mom kind of got dragged to church, I think, by my uncle. My uncle went on to be a Calvary pastor, but uh, my dad was there as well. He played in a bunch of bands and they got married and entered into the 80s and i think like most people of their of their kind they got domesticated and settled into reagan's america and so from hippie to reaganomics right and that that happened really quickly for a lot of people uh they and when i say domesticated i mean like they became you know more tracked home people in new neighborhoods where a mere five years before they were living more communally and i always thought that was interesting because it seems like that experiment really didn't fail those people so much as they just start just stopped doing it. But in my in my earliest years, there were always a lot of people around, a lot of adults that still hung out together the way that typically only teenagers do now. And yeah, I mean, it was part of their culture, and they carried that into the church. My dad had been doing that and touring on the road for ten years uh, with all sorts of different bands, and especially the biggest names that were kind of formative and creating what became CCM. Um, when I was born, he had stopped that life and had settled down. And uh, at the time I was born, my dad worked at Disneyland in the Tomorrowland Terrace in that stage that comes out of the ground. Um, what? Yeah. Talk about that. It was pretty cool. I mean, he told me he be, he had to beat out like thousands of other drummers applying for that gig. Uh, he went through the whole rehearsal process and and everything after scoring that gig. And then the night of the new Disney band debut that he was a part of, he had to call out because my mom was going into labor. So they had to replace him in, on the first night. Um, but he Wait, went, he with went, you? Yeah, she was going into labor with me. But, uh, but of course, you know, I don't remember most of those days. I just have always thought that was kind of an interesting place to come from. Um, I guess of note, when I was really little, I had a rare condition um, when I was a baby where my intestines didn't really work properly. And I was, I was supposed to get a dangerous op operation um, that I ended up not having to get because here's one of those faith stories. At the last second, I was prayed for and apparently didn't need it. And, um, and everything started working, functioning on that, on that mm. you know, whole front. But my parents split up when I was two, and I was shared pretty much equally in their individual homes. Uh, you know, kind of frequented both places for a couple years. And it didn't really seem like I was in one more than the other. Um, and they still lived somewhat near each other. And then when I was four or five, um, they both became involved with new people and got remarried. So my mom remarried a guy who is eight years younger than her. He was in a band and had big Aquanet hair, you know, like super 80s. <laughs> and his band was going to, you know, make the scene in L.A. Um, but in contrast to that, my dad remarried a radiologist's daughter from Waco, Texas. And that, I think, 
while I'm, you know, I'm trying to shorten, of course, this, nobody has time to tell their whole story, but that was kind of the moment that my life became about living in two worlds simultaneously. That there was this real stark contrast in the way those households were run, and um, one household was more relaxed, kind of a TV-watching, pizza-eating household, and the other was a place where virtually overnight I had to start saying yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am to everything, and we had a demerit chart on the wall where... Um, our screw-ups or perceived screw-ups were kept record of. And um, when they added up, uh, I was told we needed to do business. And I'd have that anxiety of waiting for when I'd get what were called SWATs. Uh, And when that time came... What was the weapon of choice? Well, she'd have us go into the garage and drop our pants. And I'd have to hold my ankles. And then um, there was a large fraternity paddle, like the kind... um, Really like the kind... So like a cricket bat? It They looked more like that than a spoon, that's for sure. It's definitely <laughs> the kind you shouldn't use on small children. Um, right. But that started when I was still five or six with my stepmom. And that that's always been something that stuck with me. A- around that time, I know I wanted to... It's like we were a, we were a broken family and I wanted to make my parents happy. Um, I wanted my parents to be happy and I learned basically not to communicate too much about what was hard or even what was great in essence what went Do you on mean in your relationship with them like i don't want to well when it's I'm having a tough time I'm, with dad but i don't want to say it right or if i'm talking to one of them i would keep things very cordial when it came to the other one and very surface because got it even whether it's stuff that was hard going on at another house or stuff that was easy i didn't want to burden them with that feeling was there any point that you considered one home and the other someplace I'm visiting? Or did both were both considered home? They were both they were both home. My parents are both really incredible people. So in one family there was two kids, in one family there was four, and then both families, those separate families, both had another kid that was younger than me. So I have five siblings, two step, three half. And well, no to full. an only child, that sounds like way too many. <laughs> <laughs> so on one, in one family, I was second from the youngest. and the other, I was the straight middle kid. Do you ever feel left out? Not so much. It's just there's a lot of moving parts in mixed families yeah. like that, especially when, you know, the bigger it gets. Uh, but no, um, I felt misunderstood a lot or um, unheard in different times in my life, but I didn't ever feel unseen did any of the hippie commune culture stick around at least on a subconscious level no that's that was and that's the thing it's like i came to learn that stuff about the way church had been later on in life when i was myself studying you know the history of my own church movement and stuff like that see because i mean my parents had been jesus movement people like i said but neither of them were particularly outspoken with their own faith or their theological leanings or whatever uh, that was just part of our family. And it wasn't really till my stepmom entered the picture that things got more serious because suddenly, you know, in me and my, my stepbrother's room, we had posters on the wall with like these like fantasy scenarios with people with swords and spiritual warfare verses that made this stuff really heavy about, you know, the, wow, the yeah. things we were fighting. And we went to bed suddenly praying, um, for hedges of protection and legions of angels uh, before we so went to sleep. So it got super, super protectionist, militaristic pretty quick. Right. 
And doing that before bed every night, when you used to just go to sleep, it suddenly becomes kind of scary to go to bed. And uh, yeah. I, I just remember being afraid of going to bed. I would always jump the last few feet to my bed when that happened so that the monsters wouldn't get me from underneath the bed. And I would lay perfectly in the center with my arms tight to my sides. So they couldn't reach me from underneath. So those, those sorts wow. of fears, those sorts of fears play out in that direction. But that was at my dad's house. And I would listen to Bible stuff most nights with headphones. So like salty sleepy time helpers or adventures in Odyssey, focus on the family. Um, I went to bed. Oh man. You know, that was into so much adventures in Odyssey. Yeah. And I actually, adventures in Odyssey, I, I considered a pretty positive thing in all that. Like that was, that was actually a nice change from the fearful prayers and the other stuff that would happen right before it. So those would be the things that helped me chill out and calm down before actually going to sleep. But, I did for sure go to bed for a few years being steeped in a lot of that material. So that was dad's house, dad and stepmom? Yeah, yeah. And my, did you have the same sort of like jump into bed and be afraid of monsters in the other house? No. And my mom's house was far less overtly religious, um, interestingly enough. You know, we were always still Christians there, but we didn't really... I mean, we lived in North Hollywood. We didn't really go to church or anything when I was there. Um, but I, I spent weekends... Um, a lot of the time with my dad. So I still went, grew up going to a bunch of different churches. And I, I did. We tried out so many different kinds of churches. In addition to being a family of Calvary Chapelites, um, we were all over the place. And so I got a big sampling of different denominations and flavors, um, Protestant, all of them, but uh, for sure experienced a lot of that different stuff. But yeah, in all that time, and trying out all those different churches... I was thinking, this is one of the main things I've been thinking about, is that, like, really, faith for me was not, like, I believed things hard, right? But faith for me was not a matter of a resonant feeling, you know, or an embodied sense of experience. Wait, um, what do you mean by that? I mean that when it came to issues of faith, of salvation, of theology, like, it was all just a matter of fact. And... Like, this is just a thing, it's happening, and I'm on board and I'm doing it. Right, like, it's just a fact. It's a foregone conclusion. It's not an... Ex- like, there's no other option. Right, and it's not an experiential matter of truth when uh, when you're wired the way I am and then raised the way I was. It's just a matter of fact. And so, heaven and hell, all that kind of stuff, they're just objective realities. And um, And I think because I had gotten used to not keeping all of me in the same place that had an effect on everything in my life. And so I became okay with not keeping all of me in the same place when it came to faith. Um, Just, you know, okay, it's okay if I don't actually experience this feeling I'm supposed to have in church. And because faith is always a matter of fact for me in those days, uh, there are a lot of major questions that I don't think I ever asked myself. And a lot of, I guess, experiential things that I wasn't as concerned with. And so for a long time, that shaped my way of faith in the negative. Like all I was Wait, in... can you give some examples of experiential thing that you just said? Well, kind of like I mentioned, um, as I got closer to church and I became involved with the community, like I went through some things with my dad late in high school where he wanted me to spend my last couple years living in his, his household before I was a grown-up, and which I totally understood, but I built a total life for myself on the other side of the, the U.S. My dad lived in Tennessee and my mom in California at that point. And so I went out for a few months, but I had to leave my girlfriend, who's now my wife, and leave my band and the school that I'd been at for uh, 
five years at that point, which is the only thing I'd ever had any consistency in. We went to like 12 or 14 different elementary schools before that and, and junior, junior high schools before we settled. Wait, um, I got a little lost. You left California for Tennessee or vice versa? I did. I left California for Tennessee for a few months. Okay. My 11th grade year. And then at Christmas, when I w- was coming back to California to visit, I stayed and didn't get back on the plane because, you know, I knew that if I if I voiced that that was what I wanted, that I wouldn't be allowed to have gone out to quote unquote visit in the first place. And so that so caused... was this like a full on rebellion moment? It was, but I didn't. It was one of those things where I didn't feel like it should have had to be, you know. Mm. Um, I mean, I was I'm I was an eleventh grade kid. It was like so a big kid and just kind of racked with guilt over being put to that choice and like I couldn't even I couldn't even talk to my dad about it I had to have my mom call him and that caused this big falling out and we didn't speak for a year and a half so that I mean all that was going on but I did draw closer to the church community as a result of that my my uncle who had become a Calvary pastor had um he sort of drew me in and had me start helping around the church and occupying some of my time. And I started doing sound, um, for our midweek service. And then I started, that's right. I love sound nerd. I forgot about that. (laughs) And then I, uh, I started making suggestions about things that could be done with music. And he was like, well, why don't you play with us? And it was a really just normal, relaxed invitation. There was no heavy trip in it. And he honest, I really do think he mostly was just trying to be around me and be a president presence in my life at the time. So did you actually do worship? I did. Um, that was when I. That's when I started playing and singing and doing worship, which was convenient because, like the soundboard, it's much easier to hide if you're serving um, and not have to be, like I said with you, not have to be arms high and heart abandoned. And because I have a guitar in my hand, so I don't have to make that expression that I'm not comfortable making because it's not it's not authentic to how I actually feel. And I had all sorts of evasions for that over the years. I remember like, you know, people, I would say, if I really, if you can tell that I'm really experiencing God, if I sit down and start journaling, but I will never be the guy with a banner or jumping around in the aisle. It's just not going to happen. Um, However, I am going to spend some time visualizing you doing that in my head because that's really funny. That's fair. I, I did bring it up. Um, you did. <laughs> but, it, you know, because of those things, it shaped my faith in the way of the negative and um, and that happened for a few years because from the time. So wait, I, g- what do you mean shaped your faith in the negative? And are you saying that started as soon as you started to hide behind a guitar? Well, the only positive part for me that I had known of church was the community. Was community important after the whole like I don't want to get on the plane situation? Absolutely, it became my family uh, or an extension okay, so of my family. You just dove head first into that world, right? Which I didn't, I didn't feel like it was a deliberate choice at the time. It was just there it was. And then my, all my friends from high school were all getting weirder in ways that I couldn't connect with them anymore. And, and so it just happened. I didn't, right out of high school, I had no plan. I didn't want to go straight into college and start racking, racking up debt because I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I told myself I'd take a year off. And then um, this guy who ran the media ministry at that church died and they needed someone to start editing radio shows and making copies of things. And so I was doing that within a few months. And then within a few months of that, I was leading a bunch of stuff. And within a couple of years of that, I was a pastoral intern and doing Bible college and leading a ministry, a college ministry. So, I mean, that's so a little on climbing the ladder. Yeah, but it wasn't, it wasn't intentional. Um, 
I never wanted, that was never my goal. Like I never thought I want to be a pastor. I never desired that role or that title. In fact, when I was ordained, I hated that title. And I would hate when people called me that. Um, Why? Because, because something. I mean, most people strive for that. Most people like, it's like they want an MD at the end of their title. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't like people telling you how to perceive them with things like that. With every, every. And boom goes the four. And (laughs) I don't, I I mean, think about it this way. Anybody who's ever been in a church service, especially in the South, you know, you get all these rhetorical questions where pastors will say like, now you'll say to me, pastor so-and-so, what about this? You don't know my life. You don't know my experience. And every time they do that, they are not too subtly telling you that they are a person in authority and they are a person with the answers and they are a person that is over you. And I just fucking hated that. Like from the very beginning, I hated it. Um, And I would, I would actually argue biblically since Calvary Chapel worships the Bible and nobody could ever argue back. But I would say like, you know, the, I don't see any, anything in the new Testament that makes me think you should go around calling yourself pastor. Like that's not a title. Um, That's a thing you can do. But as pastor is derived from shepherd, a shepherd exists to nourish, uh, to nourish and to guide and to um, protect and all these other things, the flock. And every single gifting that we attribute to the spirit accomplishes that. So to say that this one group of men are the pastors, quote unquote, is really robbing the community of its full ex- expression. Um, you know, like Peter says, you are all a royal priesthood, men and women alike. And... Jesus says, stop calling people teacher to the degree you do. You know, you, you, you're all together under one teacher. And, um, and so I would just see like things like that. And, and I just rejected that. It felt gross to me. It felt cheap. It felt, it felt just really like slimy. Like, like everybody, every time that, that the church secretaries or something would be like, Oh, Hey, pastor Kevin. I literally felt like I was a car salesman. Like, <laughs> and I nothing against car salesmen, but I mean, like, that's not what this is supposed to be. So how was that the whole time you felt that way, or did it creep up? Nope, I felt like that the whole time. Um, but for the other question, I think that when faith is always a matter of fact, and there are a lot of things you don't experience and don't ask yourself as far as your own personal res- resonance with ideas that you think are true, because of all that, it shapes your faith in the negative in the sense that like my beliefs weren't felt and they were seldom experienced they were just things i believed to be objectively true and that has to do with the whole god and theology scenario my experience of the church community at that point was still very much a net positive so the people i was fine with you know the institution as we were doing it i was i was okay with the stuff with god though it just sort of gets tacked on as though it's the same thing and you don't necessarily ask yourself a lot of questions as to what you what you really believe. I just believed those things to be objectively true. But the thing about that is, when that's the case, you can't really embody your beliefs in the way that other people, I think, who've experienced those things and and really hold them to be true in a different way are able to, uh, because their beliefs are rooted in a resonant experience. And so there's joy and hope to go along with them. And I didn't have that with my theology or with my construct of God. And so the only part that I did feel and did internalize uh, for a number of years was the terror of things, uh, the potential of, uh, of hell and of, of being lost to 
this or that. I've mentioned on the podcast before that I, and kind of jokingly, but it's less funny when you're a kid. Um, I would get saved every week because they'd say, you can raise your hand or you can pray this magic words prayer. And you, you might as well, you know, just to be sure. And, and so there's not a lot of security in that theology, obviously. I think that shapes you, like for me, going into, quote unquote, the ministry, I, I, would, I focused on things like apologetics right out of the gate. Um, I focused on textual analysis because something, you know, those things were, were kind of in stone. And something like prayer always seemed kind of like bullshit to me. Um, it always seemed arbitrary. Like, why are we praying and asking God to do anything? And after experiencing what I talked about as a teen, where there was the estrangement from my dad for a, a while there, um, there was always a part of me after that that I think was done with feeling guilty before God. Like, and I just didn't connect with that language anymore. And, and so I really, in the, at the height of my churchiness, I never bought into the idea of unworthiness. That was another thing it kept me from for which I am thankful. And, and I argued against that for a number of years. Um, and I, I for sure regurgitated that language of us not earning and not deserving salvation and all that other stuff because I thought it was factual, but I never believed it to be true. And I never felt bad for being human or imperfect. If like thinking back now, I know that to be the case of my experience. I never actually felt bad about that. It's not, you know, it's not like I had some other choice. And so there was some part of me that was always reasoning, if this is the sort of thing God's holding people accountable for, then God is an asshole. Um, And I think it doesn't take much, a few different little things like that, that are just sort of one place where the foundation of all the things you believe are compromised. Like that, the hierarchical structure of things, the the way I could never connect to prayer and the way that people pray, uh, intercession. Those, Those led me to really bottoming out um, so were you were you studying all that stuff in order to solve that list of things you just described? Like, here's all the things I have a problem with, and were you were no, you trying to no. find an answer to it? No, I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have had the language to know where my problems were. You just sort of study everything broadly. And you try to connect where you can. Studying the Bible always kind of felt like you were searching for some hidden nugget that nobody else had found before. Did you ever encounter that feeling? I did, but the more that I studied the Bible... The more I realized that the people that we gave credit as, as being people who could find the hidden nuggets um, were really just people that were doing the baseline work of, of exploring context and language enough to actually give you a sense of what the authors of the thing might have meant in the first place. And the idea that we dignified the other thing, which is mostly what happens, which is just people talking out of their ass about a work of literature... Um, that was the real problem. You know, it wasn't that this other thing was elevating the form or doing it so well or exceptionally. It was that that should be the norm and everybody else should shut up. <laughs> um, yeah. And because, because it's like people try to read the Bible literally, but they refuse to read it literally. Like it's, it's um, there are multiple genres in there and, and even people who reject it, like, a lot of times do so based on the same playbook they were given when they were supposed to believe the thing. Uh, and they're still reading, not that they need to read it a different way. If, if you want to reject it, fine, like whatever. Usually people reject it because they have, their conscience is, is leading them in a better direction than the Bible was or their construct of the Bible was. But I just think it's interesting how often um, 
conservative evangelicalism or whatever is still allowed to define those terms, even for people who, who, who say the thing, I don't want the thing anymore. I'm leaving the thing. And, and yeah, so there's not a lot of academic honesty in those circles. And the more study I did, the more I felt actually that, I don't know, not like I was being given language for the things I didn't understand, but I was given, I was being given more and more things I didn't understand. And and yeah, and that, that even led to, that even led to me thinking of God differently. Like I just got to the point where I thought if God is laying this sort of heavy trip on everybody, then I don't know that I can do this. And I'd already been pastoring a few years at that point. Like I had already been serving as a teacher and which I never wanted to be. It just happened. Um, and, and a worship leader in a, in a college fellowship, which I helped start and, you know, like none of it was working anyway. It just didn't matter. Nothing I had to say matter mattered. Uh, nothing we were doing mattered. Everything we were doing just felt phony. And all the people who were most serious about it, who were like, oh, we should pray every time we got together or we should street witness. It's just like, I hated all of that stuff. And so, um, so what you just made the statement, nothing matter and nothing worked. Were you talking about church leadership or theology or what were you talking about? I was talking about the exercise of those things over the fellowship that I was helping to lead. Like none of it was amounting to anything. But what happened simultaneously with that was that I went actually, um, a friend of mine won tickets to, to see Delirious in Chicago. Now we're in Northern California, but for some reason the radio station gave away tickets to a Delirious show in, t- in Chicago. And Delirious was one of like the five Christian bands I ever liked. So I was going, you know, I was going to be on a plane there and back. And my uncle had just read, read this book, um, by Donald Miller called Blue Like Jazz. And, um, Oh, Oh, that little gem, that little gem which is hilarious to say now. It feels so tame to me now. But at the time, I hadn't encountered anything like it. And I read the book on the way there and finished it on the way back. And when I got off the plane again in California, everything had changed. So one of our first questions is, is what was the catalyst of your deconstruction? Is it possible that it was this? I would say it was. Um... Because you've been describing some some beef going on for quite a while, right? There was a lot of beef, a lot of soil tilling, but but something that actually threw it into overdrive. That's a, a point I could point to and say, this is probably the first moment where where things started changing for me. Um, would be that my whole world of everything being about um, objective facts and all that other stuff had had just gone away. Like everything became this kind of warm experience of love and um, I really don't know how to describe it. I just know that it changed everything overnight and it terrified the leadership team of our fellowship because I, I started teaching so dramatically differently and I started writing such dramatically different songs and I started saying we, we should do these different things in our small groups and people were like, are you Kevin? Are you the same person we know? Um, and it, it surprised a lot of people that, I, I don't know, it gave me space to be, to put myself together. It gave me sp- space for the first time to actually find all of myself in the same place and not, not live the, the fractured identity I'd known since I was a kid, but to actually put all my eggs in this basket and say, 
This is where I, f- I think love is. This is where I think beauty is. This is where I'm experiencing truth, not just att- assenting to something I believe is factual, but experiencing truth and light it is all in the same spot. And so I became embodied to some degree there. And and I'd never really... Is it possible this is the first time it felt like your thing and not somebody else's thing you're regurgitating? No, no, it's not. I, I definitely had already had that experience and made it my own thing before that. The thing it was, the okay. problem was I just made it a, a very bad thing. Um, but, but well, you know, the, what, it, what it gave me the license to do is to find truth and to let truth be truth, regardless of its source. Um, and so I, I allowed myself to find a full resonance in art. I allowed myself to start crying at movies. I allowed myself to speak about, because art is where it's at for me. I allowed myself to speak about film and about music the way that I would the Bible. And of course, a lot of people in a, in a church culture are very uncomfortable with that. But there are other people like it's life to them. It's the first time that they've been able to connect all those things as well. And so, yeah, it was it, it caused us to do some bold things. But it's like I really I didn't care because the experience was so exhilarating um, of having myself in the same place. And and because it was that after I walked away from that book, like I actually became convinced in a sense that God was more like Jesus than I'd thought. And uh, love actually was the thing that mattered. And I had been regurgitating all this language that I never agreed with. And I decided to stop regurgitating it. Um, that maybe it wasn't factual anymore. Uh, and that I was going to talk about issues like worthiness and, um, you know, if God, God isn't, automatically like seeking to restore and beautify everything all the time then why are we bothering and and it gave me license really just to comment on things that I had observed and experienced my whole life because um, if you are if you have a childhood like I did and you experience some harsher punishments at times you really come to develop a distaste for that sort of thing like even if someone says that it's God that's doing it and calls it holy you kind of, your bullshit meter is kind of like, eh, I'm not so sure. Um, and there are just like all these massive disconnects between how we believe we're told to be and th- those things measured up against what we're told that our construct of God is or should be. And so all those things started to, in that process, and this is while I was still doing the, the pastoring thing, but in the process of that, um, you get an issue like selfless love. Like that's the best thing. We all need to do that. We all need to emulate that selfless love. But God is jealous and narcissistic. You know, it's like those are issues that start popping up that start making you realize that we are being asked to be better than we believe God is. And yet we worship God. So that's started- more specifically that version of God of wherever you're at right now. Right. Well, the, the, the version of God that the vast majority of Christians worldwide, as far as I can tell, believe in. Right. Um, how often should the Christian forgive? You know, as another issue, like how often should we forgive? Well, we should forgive as often as it's needed and we should keep no record of wrongs. But God only forgives those who jump through the right hoops, say the right words. Um, everyone else is going to experience unforgiveness and wrath ultimately forever. Um how should we go about forgiving? Well, we should do that freely. We should do that with no thought of reward or retribution or needing to get even. We should just for freely forgive. Well, how does God forgive? 
Well, God can't just get over it. God needs to slaughter something in order to do it. So in all these ways, you know, and, and when you believe that, there's no actual forgiveness in that stream of, of Christian thinking or in the quote-unquote gospel because God isn't forgiving. He's getting exactly what he wants. You know, he requires blood, he gets blood. There's no actual forgiveness taking place. It's just a payment received. And so the license that that afforded me to be able to interrogate those things was incredibly liberating. I've, and I've described it that way on the podcast before. Like, I didn't find um, that part of deconstruction terrifying or um, it was the first time things actually started clicking for me and connecting and making sense together and having some sort of cohesion and not so many elephants in the room we weren't allowed to discuss. Because, you know, for a long, a long time I thought if these other things were factual, things that I should be doing or needed to be doing, like praying more or reading my Bible more or witnessing more, I just thought that I lacked the courage of my convictions. You know, people would say that, you, you know, you have the right conviction, you just lack the courage of your conviction. But I've actually never lacked the courage of any actual convictions that I held. And I think that's true of more people than realize it. You know, what I actually lacked was a conviction. <laughs> the reason I didn't want to go street witnessing was because I thought it was bullshit. And if that's the way salvation works, then God is completely petty and arbitrary and I'm not interested, you know? The reason I didn't like the way we were praying was because if God requires us to say certain words or a certain amount of people to do it before God will act, then God's an asshole. And again, I'm not interested. Like those are... Those are the key things that we're, that we're covering up when we don't deal with those issues. And so, but for the actual things that I had conviction about, that I wanted to do, and that I truly believed in an embodied sense, I never lacked the courage to do those things. But what's hard is to try to convince people, and pastors do this week after week all over the place, where they berate people for not reading their Bible more and sharing the gospel more and, you know, doing all these things more. You can boil most sermons down into one of those things. Give more, pray more, read more, whatever. It's going to be one of the four or five mores. Um, the reason people aren't doing those things is not because they lack the courage to do them. It's because they lack the conviction to do them. Because you haven't given them a compelling reason to believe those things are actually things that need doing. Because something inside of them is telling them, eh, if that's the way it works, then this whole thing is, a, is just, this is a mess. And I really have no hope in that thing. And I think that's true of huge swaths of people that are showing up to church every week. I think that is a huge problem. I find it really interesting, by the way, I've been, I've been sort of like scratching down some notes as we went along. Little, little Kevin, baby Kevin, started with everything was a fact. And at this point in the story... Everything was a fact, and I don't know any different, and that's just how it is. And, and now you're questioning everything that is, quote, a known fact. Right. And it was how? fun. But it also, So I'm assuming at some point church leadership wasn't super happy about this. Right. And that's the part where it gets less fun because, you know, when you introduce – if you're in a conservative evangelical setting where all the, the walls are barren and, you know, everything is just really stark, um, and you introduce things like iconography to – like meditation parts of the room. And we, we were doing this a long time ago. That's, it's really super kind of a trend that's come and gone now, but we were doing the sacred space thing before it was hip. And, um, <laughs> and you know, like that's not something that, that that sort of eldership or pastoral team looks fondly upon. Our focus on the arts in general, not something that they were happy about. The fact that I stopped doing altar calls 
uh, not something they were happy about. In fact, the year I ended up leaving, um, I had, my uncle was out of town, the senior pastor, the one who got me involved in the first place. He was out of town for Christmas and had me lead the Christmas Eve service. And so I taught all the ways that, that the Christmas narrative is actually like a huge disruption of what people thought were to be factual and true. And I didn't do an altar call, which we do in Calvary. We do that at every service. I didn't do an altar call because I'd gotten used to not doing it at the college ministry. And uh, the response to my, my service itself um, that I led was really good. The next week, uh, though, I got cornered in my office by the associate pastor who, um, who challenged me for not doing an altar call and needing to submit to um, the way that, that things are done. And I said... Use the words, use those words. Yes. And I said, I don't, I think that, because he said, you need to share the gospel. And I said, I think the gospel was evident in everything that we said and did in that room. And he said, you didn't give an opportunity. And I said, I said, I, I am doing my best to make disciples here, but whether or not that, you know, works within your idea of making converts in the proper way, I don't know, but I think that I'm still doing what Jesus asked us to do. I may not have propositioned them in the way that you like. And he interrupted me and started yelling at me and saying a bunch of weird and misogynistic stuff because I used the word proposition. And um, it was scary because he's a scary guy who wears like camo all the time. And we're in my, we're in my office, you know, like nobody else is around. And yeah, um, but I didn't back down like at all. I just stood there and I said, I'm not going to get into a semantic argument with you. I said, if you can show me why you think biblically, because that was the world he supposedly thinks he inhabited so perfectly. I said, if you can show me why you think the gospel needs to be shared in the, in the uh, formula that you're telling me I didn't do, or you can tell me why I didn't do what Jesus asked me to do in making disciples, then I'll change. But otherwise, this is just a style preference. Um, How did it go? It didn't go well. Um, he left again saying that, that the thing that, you know, we all have to submit to the same thing as though like methodology was, was king. And that's the thing is like, I didn't resonate at all with the way they were doing things, but I made room for it. And that night that that happened, I felt like I, I understood for the first time the degree to which I wasn't having that same room made for me. Yeah, I'm assuming you remembered this in such great detail for a reason. Like, I'm guessing this is a pretty big turning point. Well, I know within a week or two of that, I started noticing um, some of the other pastors from the church, older pastors or elders, were showing up at our college services for the first time, just sort of keeping an eye on things. And the the way it was viewed, the whole way it was viewed was like competitive. Like I said, I made space for them to do their thing, but I was also changing rapidly and. What what made that most obvious is that, you know, like they seemed to think it was a bad thing that essentially I was drawing a couple hundred adults to the church every week who didn't go to the church at large. They just went to the college ministry. So they perceived that as a competitive, competitive thing. Like if these people were really serious about God or really serious about the Bible, then they'd be showing up to the church at large as well. They wouldn't just be showing up for, for what you guys are doing. And so I just adopted the policy of being quiet about the things I did and um, not really asking for forgiveness or permission, um, but just being as gentle and 
firm in my convictions as I was. So what's happening on the what seems to be an ever-progressing deconstruction slide? Where are you at at this point post getting yelled at by camo pants? Right, camo pants. Um, Well, you can only take those questions so far. The ones that you're asking about like, hey, why are we doing it this way? Right, because it's one thing to remake the thing, but it still be fundamentally the thing. And it's another to challenge the, the fundamental thing entirely. And so when the whole thing went in my office went down, I, I realized that it wasn't long before I was going to get witch hunted. And I also realized that I could only speak. I was getting to the point where I couldn't say the fullness of what I was thinking, um, without being, you know, burned as a heretic. So, <laughs> so I'm, I made peace with that. I had to leave and oh so you just straight up left like you 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 felt you felt it coming right well i knew that i knew that things were going only going to get more serious so what i did was i announced that i was going to leave in january that i was going to leave in six months and that gave us enough space you know to get that element of things off my back and let me do things with as much preparation as possible um, so, you know, there's a lot associated with leaving, but mostly I just wanted there to be time to, to, to come to accept it. But what I didn't want to see happen was the gross association of, oh, he's undergoing church discipline, uh, cause I wasn't going to have that. And, <laughs> um, and I also didn't want to, I didn't want people that I loved that were experiencing church as a positive thing at that point. I didn't want them to have to see that happen, that sort of like disunity and grossness. So I just announced that I was going to go and, uh, and prepared to do it. And then within six months, I, we left, we moved. Um, and we, t- we made a positive thing of it and said, we're moving because we want to do this and this. And, um, you know, we only have so many years to do that before... We so can, wait, were you masking the reasons you were leaving? In part, yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, where did you go? Where you said move? Oh, well, we moved. We moving? moved from. That's when we moved here to Nashville. But yeah, why like, did you come to Nashville? My brother was moving here anyway. Um, we were going to record an album. There were plenty of good reasons to move here, um, and just to get away. But you know, it was also traumatic as as far as things go. Like that, like the only well, reason. Well, that's a bunch of that's a bunch of big life stuff all at the same time. Yeah. I remember because I mean you've been Churchland most of your life up until this point. Mm-hmm. It's all I had you've been done. in Churchlandia, and you don't know much else, right. <laughs> you know. Totally. So you moved to Nashville of the hopes of doing what to earn money. Oh, I didn't care. I mean, I'd already, I'd already decided before that. Like, I was already feeling uncomfortable with the idea of being paid to, you know, do music and teach and all that stuff. And um, so one of the things in the question was, did you feel like something was wrong with you or something was just right with you? No, I never felt like anything was wrong with me. Um, it was I, the other stuff that was wrong. It was the other stuff that was wrong. I was, I was actually experiencing some degree of truth for the first time. And I, I started and I started experiencing pushback in a lot of ways, like early on, like any time that the discussion would turn to um, justice, you know, like the actual prophetic use of truth and love um i would you know get i know how the church means prophetic use of church and love but how did you mean it just now well i'm i mean in the sense of um i don't mean prophetic in the sense of um speaking the future i mean it in the sense of speaking the present like in the sense of telling the truth to power and 
you know, seeing Jesus within the lineage of the prophets, anytime that I moved down those pathways and turned discussion to justice, um, which, you know, which I came to believe is what love looks like when it goes in public, um, I would get dismissively labeled political. And, you know, the, the evangelical institution just shuts down when that happens. Um, but in the process of moving, Wait, what do you mean it just shuts down in the process of being political? Because that's like all it is right now. Right. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. But of course, this is before, this was right before the Tea Party thing even happened. So the whole mm-hmm. the whole Sarah Palin and then making room for Trump hadn't happened yet. Um, so the church was always still and everywhere low-key political where it was convenient to them. And that same camo pastor pa- passed out uh, voting things of how everybody should vote. For a number of years, I was just totally like neutral in all those areas. I mean, I... I voted the way I was supposed to as an evangelical, but I wasn't super political for a number of years because I'm a white kid and I had that privilege. Um, well said. Uh, but moving definitely, like within within a few months of moving, I was able to start saying what I think and, and research things to the degree I think. And I remember like having arguments via email and conversations on the phone about why I was affirming and affirming especially of gay marriage, regardless of what people thought uh, as you know, in their religious minds about, about, you know, that whole community. Uh, I just was like, you know, this is just point blank, the dumbest thing that you think you need to control the American government on and that you don't think equality applies to everyone. Uh, it's like with so many other things in church, like you're just told, you're told you're leaning on this simple factual truth. And the more, the more you come to know, the more you realize you don't know. Um, well, that's the truth. <laughs> And, but the thing was like, there's only so much of that you're allowed to say while you're still in a, in a church that preaches these other things. And so you have, you have nice private conversations with people, but from the pulpit, you're bottled up a bit. And, but leaving gave me the chance to just be like, well, I don't care. I'm going to say what I want, write what I want. Um, but the last week, the last week we were there, and this is the other thing that really stands out to me about it. The last week we were there and doing all of our like goodbye services, I was uh, in the hallway and I had like a last, my uncle liked to walk uh, whenever he did meetings with people instead of having an office meeting. So we, we had a walk and had a nice talk. He, um, in the hallway of the church, he put his hand on my shoulder and said, you know, I think that the, the, the group that I've led, he said, I think that it's going to be fine without you. Um, I think that we'll get a real evangelist in there and I think it will be fine. I think it'll continue on. All right, so I was gonna I was gonna segue into asking you about uh, leaving this community. How did it feel moving to Nashville? So now I'm gonna definitely ask, how the hell did that feel? Well, that was that was like a like a kick in the gut, and it wasn't until that moment that I actually realized that what I had been doing for years in his church was actually contextually evangelism. You know. The reason that was a kick in the gut is that I didn't realize because of the weight of the of those assumptions that I had been under my whole life. Like, I was literally bringing people into his church that would not have been coming otherwise. Like, that's all I was doing. And he viewed that as a threat rather than something good. Man. How do you, how do you lose such perspective to get to that point? 
Well, I think you Sorry. you believe. I'm just baffled I think, by yeah, that. Yeah, you you get to the point where you think you have the market cornered on methodology and truth and all those other things. Like that would like it was viewed as what what I was doing was not was not the real thing. That is a complete loss of perspective. That whole that whole scenario you just said is a complete loss of perspective. Like assuming assuming all of the things that go into uh, the belief system that make up a church, assuming all of that is true, just for a thought experiment right now, that they they have completely lost the purpose of that. Mm-hmm. Like completely. Mm-hmm. So was this was this tough for you? Because it sounds like you're getting your you, you're getting you're getting kicked in the theological nuts. You're getting kicked in the community nuts, and you're getting kicked in the geography nuts because you're going from California to hot ass Tennessee. Right. <laughs> the hardest part of it was uh, losing the community. I mean, a yeah. lot of those people to this to this day are some of my best friends, and um, and over the next two years, going back and and explaining to them the extent of why I actually left and felt I needed to go. Um, that was the hardest part of it. And a lot of it, a lot of the trauma associated with that whole thing didn't set in for years. Like it's something like you don't just process it all at once. It, it takes a long time to uncover what's going on. Do you feel like you're done with that? No, no. But I mean, when we like moved out, done with it? no, but when we moved out here, you know, it became like I had space to explore a lot of what I wanted to explore and to embody those things wholly. And, but I mean, I didn't, I didn't go start something. I actually felt like part of learning is obviously shutting up. And I committed to shutting up for a long time, for a couple, two, three years. It's like, I wasn't writing anything. I definitely wasn't leading services. I wasn't trying to find anything or lead anything. And in that time I started, I started reading a lot of like Desmond Tutu and um, Cornell West uh, I read some James Cone. I, I got familiar with black liberation theology. Um, I fell in love with the book, The New Jim Crow, when that came out, um, which is by Michelle Alexander. Everybody should read it. Um, it's, we should start a book list. I know. We should really start a book list on the website. You know what? I'm doing that and, since you know I made the website. I'm doing it. And so much of that stuff for me was like, okay, there's theology that actually sounds like a modern and contextualized form of the Jesus that I know that I, that I've, that I've like come to understand from, from ancient history. And, um, and from that context that Jesus is written about in. And then on the political side of things, I had a lot of time. I had a lot of time in the car where I would be like waiting for Kristen because she worked later than I did. And so I started listening to, I'd been fairly, like I said, apolitical, but I started listening to talk radio. And because it was talk radio, that was primarily a bunch of conservative voices. And I just remember for a few weeks, like I tried, I listened, I thought if I'm going to get, get serious about this whole world, you know, being connected, uh, I need to learn some things. So I started listening to all these, like um, Sean Hannity and Glenn Beck and Phil Valentine and Michael Savage. And every time I did, I'd sit in the car and listen to those radio shows and I would just hear nothing but ignorance and fear and anger and um and the issues they brought up led me down wikipedia rabbit holes and so i started studying political history and economics and stuff that way and um there's this whole you know process of coming to grips with so many things in reading all that stuff and studying all that stuff and having the space to do so but um a lot of it you know boiling down hugely to socioeconomic issues, environmental issues, 
um, interrogating whiteness, uh, white supremacy, white fragility. Um, those, those are the things that became more dear to me in that time. And it was just, a, it's like, that was what I believe to be the most modern expressions of what the Bible is trying to say, uh, in its best parts, you know, cause everybody, it's like, nobody actually believes the whole Bible, nobody. And that's, I think that's something that's important for Christians. If people who remain Christians to actually realize it's like, everybody's cherry picking the Bible, everybody. And the only question is whether you pick decent cherries because, because there's really no option to do all of it at once. It has better moments and it has worse moments. And it's not really a plateau of this like single voice the way that it's, that it's uh, presented as. But all that is the good part, you know, but the process of like dealing with traumas you experience and abuses you experience, you realize that it's like, it's not just the abuses of church that hurt us, that it's also, um, it's also keeping us from who, that, who we wish to be. So to be free from the institution isn't like, it's not just, oh, I, I'm detached from the institution that's causing pain, but it's actually a freedom to do good, to be better, you know, a, a freedom to finally channel our passions and our work um, towards the world that we've always wanted to see. Why was that being prohibited before? I mean, I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but why Why was everything you just described, which is fantastic, why, why did you feel prohibited from doing that before? Well, because if you actually connect the dots in any way that matters, then it challenges the entire institution and everything it's built upon, because it's not built upon those things. So, yeah. you know, you come to realize, even if you're a ways down that road of de and reconstruction, that if you can't embody your beliefs, you're going to be miserable, even if your beliefs improve. And that's one thing it's like, even, even trying to remain in kind of a churchy environment to some degree, um, after moving, it's like we kept going to a church out here. And um, even if your beliefs and thinking improve, if there's nowhere to embody those beliefs and there's no community that you see embodying those beliefs, then they're as good as dead beliefs anyway. And... And that's, that's the real tough part, you know, like if there's no place for you yourself to embody the things that you're believing in, the things that you're passionate about, what I've come to realize and experience over the past few years has been that if you maintain yourself in an environment like that, you are, ex you're having the experience of being closeted because once again, the fracturing is happening and you can't be you can't be fully yourself. You know, if this, this church of sweet people, if they knew what I actually think about salvation um, and that I don't think it's necessary because I don't think we were ever lost and I, you know, I don't believe in any God who wouldn't save everything. If they, if they knew what I thought about um, LGBT plus issues, if they knew what I thought about uh, whiteness in America, if they knew what I thought about nationalism, if they knew what I thought about violence, if, I, if they knew what I thought about all these things, they would cast me out as a heretic, as a danger. And so I'm back in that same spot of I'm trying to be the one who holds space and tries to maintain love and tries to maintain connection where it matters. But I can only be part of myself again. And so that experience of being and I actually talked about this on, on one podcast that I, that I was interviewed on before, but that experience of being closeted, what, you, what I recognized in that process is that the thing about being closeted isn't that you 
If, if you do it at length, if you can't be fully yourself without being perceived as a threat or a danger, when you, when you experience that feeling, it's not that you are never able to fully be yourself anywhere. What it ultimately becomes is that you forget who you are in time. You start to lose touch with any connected sense of who you even are. Is that because of not proximity with the community? Why, why, is, why do you lose that sense? Well, because you're, you're surrounded by people who are embodying the things that they believe to be true. And you're there as this outlier, uh, what Richard Rohr calls being on the edge of the inside. Yep. Um, totally makes sense. And so it's, it's just... I, I sought that place out. Yeah. And it's <laughs> alienating. You know, as somebody who actually desires to be known, that's very alienating. And, and I don't want to ever... Like I said, I'm in process. So I make room for all kinds of people. But I also am still an idealist. And if I'm ever to believe that there is a point in even doing church anymore, um, that there's a point to any of this, then it's like progressives need to get with it as much as conservatives need to. It's like they're both still dealing with fundamentally the same God who needs to be asked to show mercy. And, um, you know, all these things that to me sound like a monster and an asshole. And, it, and it's not just that, it's like, it's like there's so many more beliefs that need to be interrogated for this thing to actually be as decent as we are, or as we have the capacity to be. And I don't see that embodied anywhere. Even in the sweetest, most progressive-leaning churches, it's like I don't see it embodied on a, in a wide scale almost anywhere. Um, theologically, like at the academic level, if this was being done well, you'd, you'd have a lot more Christians that weren't just like reaching from traditional monster god theism into open theism where okay this is how we explain how god's such a jerk he's also an idiot um great job theology um we would see more people more pastors teaching panentheism as a way of theism we we you know i wouldn't be excusing the old testament by saying look god was stupid and god was learning things like you would actually look into something like process theology um which i there's no way i can go into that here but that's just an example uh, it's like i don't see I see people who are who believe God's a monster and are trying to reflect monster God in one corner. And I see other people who still kind of believe God's a monster but are much nicer than that God and somehow don't feel don't see the tension there. But I don't see a lot of people who are like if we're going to maintain this belief in God, we need to recognize a that the only place that we see God moving and being embodied is in us. And b what does that say about God? Because that's what I'm not seeing anywhere. It's like, it's nice that affirming churches exist now. And it's nice that a lot of that stuff's happening. But even in the most progressive circles, it's like, I don't know. It's just not satisfying to me. Um, Has there been any progression at all? I mean, you, you've been in church land for quite a long time. Like you were way deeper in than I ever was. Um, have you seen any sort of progressive change? I... On some level, is yes. it getting better or is it getting worse? Is kind of what I'm asking. I think that it's not it's not distinct. It's not compartmentalized from everything else going on in our society, and I mean in the sense that it's becoming more extreme and more polarized. Um, the options that we were given by those in authority over us and those in leadership were conform to everything we already are, or go away, and so a lot of us went away. Um, hmm. The option, and that's that's true of the entire the entirety of our culture when it comes to the way baby boomers have dealt with our generation. 
It's be everything we are. We're going to hang around way too long, not pass the torch. So stay at a low level, conform, you're a grunt. And then one day you can take over maybe and do it just like we did it or get out of here. And, you know, so you get out of there. Did you ever end up replacing the community that you lost? I don't think I can ever replace that thing because it existed in a different paradigm that I was living in. And I would never, I would never set up or set myself up in the place to be a part of that exact kind of thing again, I don't think. I don't think. But, you know, we did find uh, a community here. We helped make a community here that, um, that you're a part of. That we meet, you know, as far as like having people we're in relationship with that are friends that discuss a lot of this stuff. But it's different discussing it years later and down the line when you don't actually have all your eggs in that basket anymore because you're not driven by fear of some angry and distant god. You know? Well, do you have your eggs in any one basket or are you sort of emotionally diversifying now? I don't I don't know that there's a, a way to answer that honestly. I feel different every day. Well, that's day. kind of what the church causes you to do is is it's like, hey, everything is here right now in this building. It's all about the building. <laughs> right. I can say this much. It's like this is what I've learned that I can tell where I did or didn't have faith in the past by whatever pain and grief associated, like whatever pain or grief I've experienced associated with losing those same things, those same beliefs or constructs. But as far as replacing them, a lot of the work of deconstruction is realizing they don't need to be replaced. So it's like, if I am to be a Christian, I'm definitely not someone who believes in hell. I'm definitely not someone who believes that justice should be retributive. I'm definitely not someone who thinks that God is angry or any of that stuff. But what I... So, I, so where are you at well, on your release right now? What I care less about is even saying things like that. Because, like I said, if it's not embodied in a community somewhere, I'm not sure I'm interested. Um, huh. I spent so much time... It's interesting because in, in the church, the belief system is what gathers the community. And you're saying you actually want the opposite. Right. You want a community that's just... I'm saying I'm saying what the Bible says, oddly enough. I just realized that as we were saying that. It's like, you say... Do tell. Show me your faith without your works. I'm saying, show me your faith by your works. And I'm not just saying that to other people as an indictment. It's like what I realized in the process of, of D and Reconstruction that was not fun was I came to believe a lot of things that I that I thought were better options theologically. And then realizing if... I'm not actually embodying those beliefs. If I'm not if I'm not in a situation or an environment or a community where I can act on those beliefs at all times, then they're u- as useless to me as the stupid dead ones that I used to believe. So what I'm trying to do is not allow myself to move back into the fragments where I'm okay yeah. with keeping the good ideas up on a shelf, but I'm still just whatever, this other person because I don't have to be fully anywhere. And it's like, I demand being fully somewhere. So, so wait, have you found that? Because that statement completely makes sense to me. I haven't but, found it, no. I mean, it's. I, it sounds like everything you just described, you're still at least partially fragmented. Yeah, I, I mean... Do you think there's of, ever a place when you're not? I don't know. A lot of the work that I've been doing with the podcast over the past, like since the, since last fall, has been helping me realize that. Um, 
And me too. That I'm not, that I'm still disembodied, or that I'm not fully anywhere ever, or um, that I don't know what it means to be fully anywhere ever. Well, I don't know if this is useful, but the thing that I have noticed between your definition and description of everything in the past with uh, the church and the community and the belief structure, and then kind of where you're at now, it seems to be that the modern church is based on destination-based thinking, not journey-based thinking. Like, I, I hate to sound like a giant cliche, but life actually is about the journey. The destination is death. <laughs> like, the destination is you're not breathing anymore. That's mm-hmm. the end of the race. Right. And a lot of a lot of the reasons to hold up the morality in the church is because the destination is heaven. It is it it is all about the destination. It is not that much about the journey. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of why I'm wondering. And all the stuff you were talking about, and like I want I want to fill my I have room for everybody, but I don't feel like I'm really I'm fragmented. I don't feel like I'm really anywhere. I don't know that I'll ever will be. Uh, is kind of what you're saying, right? And I'm I'm wondering if there comes. I wonder if that's still a little bit based in in destination thinking. Like there is no done, you know. No, I fully believe there's no done. But that's actually that's actually part of where. <laughs> no matter how many people you make space for, there's still a scary part of D and reconstruction because it's fun to realize God is nicer than you thought, and it's fun to realize that. Even academically, it's stupid to believe in hell. That's fun. That's really liberating. Um, when you when you when you do the study of like, oh, this is metaphor, and it's very much directed at Israel and all this stuff Jesus is talking about. And that's why Paul never mentions these same things because they only apply to these other people. Um, and hell is not a thing that was invented by Dante and Anselm and all these other dumb theologians later on. Uh, that's great. What sucks is when you realize that heaven, the same discussion, like the same constructs we've been handed of heaven, all the same things apply to. If you're deriving your beliefs from scripture, that we're actually talking in a lot of metaphor. We're talking in a lot of analogy. And in the truest Jewish sense, nobody knows what the shit happens after you die. Nobody. <laughs> mm. The degree to which people in the New Testament are adamant or um, dogmatic about an afterlife in the same way we are. I'm not too sure of. Uh, I think they talked poetically a lot more often than we think in general. Um, so, so to lose the belief in hell is great. To lose the sense of heaven as a foregone conclusion, less great, less fun. And, and for me, the hardest thing that I've ever lost in my beliefs um, is the foregone conclusion that everything's going to be okay. Uh, it's it's the the absolute belief that everything will work out to get together for good that um, that that you know that every tear will be wiped away yeah you can tell you can tell like I said you can tell um, where your faith actually was by the pain and grief that's associated with losing that part of your faith and I think that of everything that Christianity ever taught me that was the thing I clung to the heart the, the most was that this is this is all whether I live to see it this is all going somewhere great everything's going to be okay and the more that I've come to understand the world around me the more that that is not a foregone conclusion because God is is simply not who most Christians are play, praying to if God if God exists then God is not what Christians are making God out to be and 
the, the world could end very well, but that's up to us to do that. It's up to us to embody our beliefs in a way that leads to light and life and health and beautification. And it's really hard at a time like this in history to believe that we're doing that. And I talked to someone actually for the podcast about this. It's, it's a call that hasn't aired yet, but we were talking about that. And like even, even the MLK quote that people pass around saying, you know, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. It doesn't do that on its own. It does if we bend it. Yeah, there's got to be someone bending it. Right. And, and so the, the foregone conclusion that God was doing the bending and we were just kind of coming alongside and joining in that, like, I, I just don't believe that anymore. And that, that is something I've come to grips with over the past year, you know, like I said, of working on the podcast. In fact, when I, the moment I realized that that was gone, it wasn't like I lost it recently, but I realized I had lost it, <laughs> which is the more important part. The moment that I realized it was gone, I actually felt anxiety for the first time in a long time. And that was... That happened around Christmas last year, um, where, you know, every, everything that I've ever changed and gone through, everything that, that I've ever sought out better, better thinking, better beliefs on, has never challenged that fundamental thing that I thought it all worked within the construct of this was all going to, to end in something great. Yeah. And, and I, and losing that belief alongside having a baby, which, you know, Stella's four months old, um, almost five months in a few days. Um, those two things coupled together is a very staggering feeling. Um, you know, for what it's worth, you're a remarkably strong human being. I mean, it's, I mean, it's almost comical being on the other side of this conversation because now I'm starting to understand some of the things you were saying to me during, during my call, uh, is, is that, you know, you've, you've been through a lot, but you're still, you're still kind of, kind of trudging along. I don't, on a personal level, I'm glad to know all this. Like this was, this was a big old dollop of honesty that the half of it, I didn't even really know in, in a, in a moment of true honesty is when we actually learn somebody's real underlying reasons for doing things. And, and I, this is, this is a big old bit of honesty. I'm sure it was tough for you. So how do you, how do you want to leave this? How, how do you want to close this out? Because from what I've heard is you, you've you've gone from a, a big progression in your life from absolutism to uh, I'm figuring it out. <laughs> and I mean, just, you you mentioned being fractured and still trying to work it out. So where where are you at and where are you going? In your opinion, yeah, I don't know. That's a great answer. I don't know. I am. That's always my answer. <laughs> I am. I would differ from. I think Derek described it as being happily detached from his former belief system. Right. I. I agree. I'm happily detached from my former belief system, but I'm not satisfied with what I am attached to. And it's not because I'm attached to anything. 
I'm attached to a lot of things, but the things that I believe now are not in the clouds. You know, they're things that are true on the ground. I think it's more that I'm never satisfied. And and in a way, it's like, it's, it's simultaneously I wish I was, but also I know that the lack of satisfaction is what drives me to keep awake. Mm. A huge thanks, as always, to everyone who listens and supports the podcast. The final episode of Season 2 is coming next week, but we will continue releasing bonus episodes to Patreon during our break. You can interact with us across social media platforms and let us know if any of these stories speak to your own experience or your own process. Not too long from now, we'll be making a bunch of space available for new calls and letters to be featured in Season 3, so check out the website if you want to be a part of it. And we will see you again next week after church for the airing of grief. Thank you.